We're in Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 13. And uh, we're studying Noah. Noah, uh, a righteous man. The only one of his generation. We ended last week when we read about Noah finding grace. And to find grace, you've got to be looking for grace. <laughs> and as Christians, we also, because we are Christians, have found grace. And all that is, is God's unmerited favor through Jesus. And that we're grateful for. You can't earn grace. Um, a lot of times, a lot of Christians get caught up in trying to be righteous in and of their works, trying to earn grace. And you can't earn God's grace. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from our Heavenly Father, grace. God's love towards us is so complete, it is such a finished deal that you can't increase upon it, nor can you take away from it. But the expression of God's love to us is grace. Grace will keep the door open for us to have fellowship with God. Because each and every one of us, Christian or non-Christian, we are going to sin. We are going to miss that mark of perfection. And when we miss that mark, that righteous requirement by God, well, we usually repent and we receive forgiveness through grace. And then our relationship is restored to God through grace. And the trouble with this is we do this over and over again. How I wish that all my sins were past tense. But uh, unfortunately, I will probably sin before the day is out. I just hope you're not there to see it. But anyway. The great mystery is, though, why does God continue to show each and every one of us grace and love? I would have quit on me a long time ago, by the way. But God doesn't. And he doesn't quit on you. He continues. He works with us. And that is grace. As Christians, we love one another, as God tells us to. And time and again, we're called upon to forgive one another. Now consider this. If I begin to sense, if I begin to detect that perhaps you are going to sin against me, you are going to do me wrong, I will put up a shield of protection. I will distance myself from you. I, I begin to prepare myself for hurt feelings. But our Lord Jesus, he's not like that. 
Jesus, being God, knows our future behavior. He knows the sin that we will commit the next moment, the next day, the next week, whatever. And he still loves us, even knowing that we will do him wrong. And we come to church, and we have good fellowship, and we praise the Lord as we should. And we hear a marvelous, touching sermon. I give those, by the way. And we enjoy fellowship with one another. Then we leave. We go out and we commit some sin that grieves us and it grieves the Lord. And we break fellowship with the Lord by sinning. Here's what I want you to consider, though. God is faithful to us right up to that moment that we sin and he knows we're going to sin. He's still faithful to us right up till we break fellowship with him. Part of God's grace is that he remains vulnerable to us, remains open to hurt from sinning mankind and even sinning Christians. And this vulnerability by our Lord is one of the reasons that Scripture declares Jesus a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The cross of Christ is the singular greatest act of love and grace that this world has ever seen. And as we study, we go from Adam, and now we're up to Noah. And all we see is God demonstrating grace. Noah's greatest achievement in life was, maybe not what you would think it is. Not building an ark, by the way not being that instrument of God's salvation for the entire world. All of that is a byproduct of Noah finding grace. It all started when Noah found grace. Grace is also my and your greatest find as a Christian. You experience grace, it demands that we change. You cannot live in grace without it changing your heart and life. So let's read this morning's text. Genesis 6, and we'll look at verses 9 through 13. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. Perfect in his generation, Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In verse 9, we have Noah, a just man. 
perfect in his generation, and he walked with God. Now, for Scripture to record that you're a just man, it has a lot more significance than if I declare myself a just man. And Scripture has said that Noah was a just man. The prophet Micah, in his uh, book, he speaks of what is pleasing to God. And he talks about, will God be pleased with sacrifices? Will God be pleased with our offerings? And let me read you Micah uh, chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, speaking of God, and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There it is. Micah has encapsulated what is important for man. God has shown man what is important. Micah declares uh, that we're to do justly. We're to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Micah is talking about a man like Noah. And yet Micah came several hundred years after Noah. Have you ever been surprised uh, with somebody being more than just to you? being a little more than simply fair to you? I think we all have. We've all experienced uh, something that's good like that. And I sold a pickup truck, a little Toyota, about a year ago to a young man. Money has changed hands, and I give the young man a $20 bill. He asked me, what is that for? I simply said, the truck is real low on gas. That's just a little bit of gas money. That's all it is. And it was well worth that $20 just to see the look on his face. What are you giving me money for, you know? Just doing a little more than this fair. We Christians are to be fair and just. Not with just one another. We're required to love one another, but we're to be fair and just in our business deals, in our relationships with those that are not Christians. My mother, a good Hebrew lady, I say that, <laughs> her idea was a, of a good deal was when the other person suffered. You know, in the transaction, if she made them suffer, then, hey, she got her money's worth. And that was a good deal to her. Uh, but that isn't the way it is. We're to be fair and just. Have you ever stumbled on a deal and said, hey, it's worth more than that. Here's what I'll give you. We don't ever feel obligated to do that, do we? <laughs> well, I'm not crazy. But anyway. We go to restaurants, and we should be generous when we tip the waiter. Why? One of my reasons why is Christians have a bad reputation of being cheap. And I want to break that stereotype for as Christians go. 
really, you, you talk to a waiter or a server sometime, and they'll tell you the worst tippers are Christians. And this is a person who has bowed their head, thanked God for their food, asked Him to bless it, and then they won't even give the waiter who brings them that food a fair tip. Those things shouldn't ought to be among Christians. They shouldn't be. Noah, he worked on the ark, we're told, 120 years. In that 120 years, he only had his three sons to help him. Noah probably had to hire help with the large beams to construct this ark. Noah paid a fair wage to those workers. How do I know that? Noah was a just man. Noah was just. Where money was due, he paid it. He was fair. Several years ago, a large group of Christians were convinced that the rapture would occur in 1987. There had been books written about 87 reasons in 87. You may have read one of those. And some of these Christians, thinking the rapture would occur, went out and maxed out their credit cards. Put the full limit on them. (laughs) Thinking, I will make the banks deal with my debt. Because I'm out of here. That is not just. And there was Christians that were doing this. That was not only stupid, it was greedy. Because the Lord didn't return in 87. (laughs) Noah was just and fair when everybody around him, the entire world, was corrupt and evil. Not almost everybody Everybody. There are times when we will receive some random act of kindness, and that kind of lifts our spirit, kind of makes us feel better, makes us think there's hope for humanity and so forth. And we think the world, well, the world is not such a bad place after all. Noah never had anyone show anything to him outside of his family but contempt. Because Noah is the only singular righteous man on the earth. Can you imagine the sarcasm that Noah had to put up with? Hey Noah, didn't you say there was a flood coming? What's a flood, Noah? because the world had not experienced a flood. Noah had become, without a doubt, the laughingstock for miles around. People would travel, no doubt, come on, let's go over and look at that big boat Noah's building. We'll get a few laughs. But Noah was determined. He was determined to be faithful. He was determined to be just before God and the perseverance of Noah and his faith is really amazing when you look at his situation because Noah was a target of scornful evil people 
for at least 120 years. Scorn is very difficult for us to deal with. It is for me. And Noah had to deal with scorn, ridicule, for 120 years as he built the ark. Noah's family had to deal with that same sarcasm. Now here's my personal opinion. For me and my thinking, Noah probably had more sons than Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives and Noah's wife, are the only ones that stood with him to build this ark. Noah was about 500 years old when he began to build the ark. And to be 500 years old, even in that day, you started bearing children, say, 50 years old. He had 450 years to bear children. Noah probably had many children and many grandchildren. That's a lot of years to reproduce. And in verse 9, it tells us Noah was also perfect. Now, that does not mean that Noah didn't have faults. It does not mean that Noah never sinned. Noah was perfect in his dedication and commitment to God. And that's what the perfection is talking about. Noah did not waver in the slightest when he was even told to build an ark. I can only relate to that in small doses. As you know, some of you, most of you probably, Lori and I live in this charming old house. Lori loves our charming old house. Don's job is to give her every modern convenience in that old charming house. So when Lori says to me, you know what would be nice, honey? Red flags fly like you can't believe. Lori said that to me right after our kitchen oven went out. She says, you know, honey, this would be a good time for us to remodel the kitchen. Let me translate that to you. New appliances, new countertops, new flooring, new cabinet doors, and for Lori, these were simply words. But for Don, it's a job. It meant months of labor for me. But we finished, and our kitchen looks good. And I'm rejoicing. But then I have another dilemma. Lori has discovered that underneath the carpet in our living room and dining room is these wonderful hardwood floors. And once again, I have heard, you know what would be nice, honey? <laughs> and I shudder at those words. But anyway, but Noah was perfect in his dedication and commitment to God and he had to be to take on a project that would take him 120 years to complete. 
that is a commitment that is mind-blowing. I don't think there's any other commitment like it in Scripture. 120 years Noah worked on the ark. But Noah was not only perfect in commitment, he was perfect in his gene pool, in his DNA. Because only Noah and his family had not polluted their gene pool, their DNA strand, as human beings. Because we had read earlier in the chapter that demons had now worked their way into the human race and the daughters of men were having these demonic children that were giants. Only Noah is perfect in that gene pool area. God has preserved Noah. He's one man, perfect in all ways. For why? To reproduce the human race after the flood. So we have Noah. He's just, he's perfect, and he walked with God. For me, that's simple. And God knew the task of Noah building an ark was going to be long, arduous, difficult to say the least. So Noah and God would go for walks. And on these walks, as they walked together, it says Noah walked with God. I'm sure God was an encouragement to Noah. But all of mankind, apart from Noah, is corrupt and evil. Verse 12 tells us all flesh was corrupted before God on the earth. And that's not a general statement. There's general statements in Scripture that talks about meaning almost entirely the gospel has gone out into the whole world. Uh, that means it's gone out to almost everybody alive. It doesn't mean each and every individual necessarily. But Noah, apart from Noah, in his day, all flesh, every other person, apart from Noah and his family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, is corrupt. Can you imagine living in a world where you're the only one that considers God in anything that you do? Sometimes we as Christians think, you know, how evil and violent this world is, and it is. We have TV, we have movies we, that are giving off their evil influence, and we have mass killings that go on, and we have terrorists doing their bombings, and, and that's not even unusual or big news anymore. There's rioting and violence, and they're commonplace. <clears throat> However, Noah is the only man that could honestly say the earth is filled with violence. And then we hear God say to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth, the world at this time, is completely evil apart from Noah. And it's evil to the core, through and through. God says even their thoughts are how to do more evil. And the destruction of the world comes before God. Now, it's not like God suddenly realized the world is evil and I've got to do something about it. When all information, all knowledge is before you, 
<clears throat> excuse me, there's no trying to figure out motives. God has all knowledge, all future information before him. We don't have that. Our thinking is we assemble, bring together facts, things that we consider truth, and then we come to a conclusion. God doesn't think that way because he has all knowledge. God doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. He knows the future. <clears throat> God simply says, all the thoughts and actions of man are now evil. And their destruction has come before me. God is simply saying, I've had enough. In God's economy, in his kingdom, mankind has taken sin and corruption to the point where God is required by his nature, or by who he is, to judge the world. God cannot consider himself just if he does not judge the world in Noah's time. Jesus told us in the Gospels, he said, the wages of sin is death. And the whole world is sinful apart from Noah. The world is completely evil and it's time for judgment. And this comes before God. Simply put though, God must judge the world to be a just and fair God. In chapter 15 of Genesis, a few chapters ahead, God is establishing a covenant with Abraham. God speaks of Abraham's promise of a long life, many children, and God tells Abraham that his descendants will return to the land of promise, back to Canaan. And the wording in Wording in Genesis fifteen sixteen is very interesting wording. <clears throat> in that verse we read, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When any man or society reached a point where their iniquity is full, is complete, God's judgment must come. As a Christian, we're curious. The disciples were curious. They went to the Lord and they said, when will the end come? And what will the sign of the end of the age be? Read Matthew 24 sometimes. So when God judges this world for the last time, and only God knows when that will be. And only God knows when it will come before him. But we're curious. We want to know, what will the events be? And you have a lot of prophetic passages in scriptures that give us clues to how it will be. And one of those is, as it was in the days of Noah. Wow. During the Great Tribulation, uh, there will be many that are martyred for their confession of Christ. And 
they cry out to God, those that have been martyred, in, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. I'll read that little passage to you. It's better I read it than try to <laughs> quote it from memory. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. These martyred saints cry out to God, avenge our blood. Give us justice, Lord. They've been given a white robe a sign of purity, and the Lord tells them to wait. They have to wait. They can't have their immediate judgment. Rest a little while longer until the number of your fellow saints are killed. These are the tribulation saints now that we're talking about that have given their lives as a witness for Christ. That is not talking about us Christians who have been raptured at this point in time and we know that we're not appointed to God's wrath so this is during the tribulation that we're talking about but these martyred saints they want to know how long God the how long is when that number of martyred saints is completed and when it is completed then They will be avenged. There's also a number spoken of in Scripture. And when the last Gentile who will be saved is saved, then our Lord will return. So God has got it marked in history. It's future history. It just hasn't happened yet. When that last Gentile is saved, I believe the rapture immediately occurs. Then our Lord comes back seven years later in his second coming. God's patience and grace with mankind before the destruction of the flood, it came down, it funneled down, it came down to one man, one man being just and one man perfect in his generation one man who walked with God. And when the world got down to that one man, the destruction of the world, it came before God. And because God is God, he was required to judge the world. But the beautiful thing is, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then you too have found grace, the greatest gift known to man. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.
Noah looked for grace. It's not only good to look for grace, it's good for us to recognize grace when God gives it to us. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that you preserve one man, you preserve humanity through Noah. You showed tremendous grace to Noah, to his family. And Lord, you show tremendous grace to us. Us who call you Lord, us who have trusted in you for our salvation, we flourish, we relish in our grace because of Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. We never want to be found abusing grace. We want to be appreciating grace. Thank you for your unmerited favor, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us heaven as our future home. Your grace towards us abounds, and we thank you for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.